is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I speak to professional investors and we discuss how they approach investments, how do they pick winners and losers, and what do they do with losers. And uh, this is, of course, in the context of their personal portfolios, not the professional portfolios they manage. And the idea is to find golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. And my guest today is investor. Investment rock star David Shapiro. He's officially the deputy chairman of SASFIN, but he's been in the industry for more than 50 years. And he has really seen it all. He's also won most of the awards, investment awards available in South Africa. David, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to start off with you. you joined the JSE in 1972. You must have seen so many markets, crashes, recoveries. Mm. And how do they relate to what we're currently seeing? They're all the same. They always test you and you always think you never see the end of the tunnel. You know, you only see bleakness. But things pass. And uh, this one will also pass. It rattles you. It tests you. But this is the time that people do stupid things. So I think the advice is that in very simple terms, Rake, if you go back to when I started on the market in 1972, if you go back another... 50 years before that, and you look at the market and you look at where it is today, you know, that chart is still going from the bottom left hand to the top right hand corner. And that's how markets work. You know, economies will grow, companies will emerge, there will be opportunities. So there are ups and downs. And what I'm saying to you is probably trite and uh, it might not give you comfort, but we get through these things and you know it's going to come. After every drunken spree, you get a hangover. That's how it works. Even while you're at that party, you know what you're going to feel like in the morning. And I think that's really what it is. Do you still Mm -hmm. get anxious when you see, you know, those big dark red numbers? Well, uh, I prefer not to have them. (laughs) But, Rake, what you do, and there's so many lessons that I've learned along the way. And what you learn to do is you learn over the years just to focus. And I know that's an easy word. It's It's a five-letter word, but what you do is you keep looking for quality investments that you know you're going to be with for a long time, and also that takes experience. How do you find quality companies? But you know that they're going to emerge, and you know that they're going to be stronger, and they will continue to pick up, and you just ride it through. So it's easy for me. It's easy to select those shares. The difficulty is handling the emotions of clients and people that you talk to. That's the difficulty, is managing their aspirations and emotions. Yeah, emotions. I think that is the the, yeah. the worst to react on emotions. Is really, you know, it's been proven over and over again mm. that it's going to cost you a lot of money. But you have invested and invest all people's savings, their life savings. Mm. Your success will mm. determine their quality of life post-retirement. You also manage your own personal portfolio. Do you manage them differently? No, no, exactly the same. In other words, I would not buy something for my clients that I wouldn't buy for myself. I'm not speculatively minded at all, not at all. You know, I'm a theme-driven person. And even now, I'm battling with a lot of commentators. I'm battling with a lot of analysts. I'm saying, you know, the, the question I keep asking is, okay, 
Where are we going to be two years, three years, four years, five years down the line? What are the companies that we're going to be investing in? In fact, I was asked a question or I answered a question about passive investment versus active investment or why not just buy an index. And I said the beauty about active investment is we're not looking for the companies that are dominating the market now. We're looking for the companies that are going to dominate the market in three, four, five years. It might be the current companies. I'm not saying they won't be there. But you're always looking for other areas of growth and uh, development. That's always been my approach. And what worries me at the moment, and I think the Fed has really bummed things up this time because, I, you know, I think things have gone under control. When you see markets performing the way they are at the moment, all it's exposing is a lack of control. You know, they've lost control of things. In other words, they haven't comforted investments. This is not, yes, you want to let the air out of the tire slowly or out of the balloon. What's happened is they've popped it. You know, I'm not sure how they're going to blow it up again or how they're going to fix the puncture just to carry on with an analogy. But I'm saying we're at the moment, we are going to clients and saying, look, the companies we got, the companies we own are still in very good shape, still well funded, you name it, they're there. And they're still going to be around in three, four, five years. They're still going to be the company that are dominating the economic landscape. And mainly, I must say, a lot of these are offshore businesses and that. So that's what we focus on. The macro side, very difficult. The micro side, that's easy. It's not difficult. Let's go back. You grew up in Turfontaine in the south of Joburg. That was my dad. <laughs> Where did you my grow dad. up? I thought you were there. I grew up in Greenside, yeah. In Greenside. But uh, my dad was Turfontaine, Rosettenville. He went to Forest Boys, what's it? Yeah. Mm. So, Forest, uh, Forest High, Forest High, Forest High. No, Forest Down is Snooty. Mm. That's by the Zoo Lake. This is Forest High, which was Turfentine, uh, La Rochelle, all those areas. So, he was brought up in a very, very tough environment. Did he introduce you to the stock market? He joined the market in 1933, and there was a break in the market. Listen, I wasn't around there, but there was something to do with. I think either South Africa going off the gold standard in that era, something happened which created a boom on the market. And having just matriculated, there were no jobs. You're in the depths of the depression. He never had money to go to varsity. His dad was deceased. His mom, I think she was really supported by her relatives. And he went to, he just went to the stock exchange. He had a friend who worked there and he was given a job and he never left. He started in the job in 1933, and uh, he left you know, when he died. That was the last time. So he spent 60 years on the market. He loved to trade gold. Now, he was a gold trader. But, but Drake, they traded in gold shares. There's a big difference between gold shares and gold. It was a golden age of our market. Uh, yeah, but most of the industry. shares at one stage were gold mm -hmm. shares. Well, that's what I'm saying. And the difference where people, you know, sometimes they say to me, oh, you know, your dad was a gold bull. Yes, but he was a gold mining bull, you know, because each mine had its own characteristics. You would measure the grade, what they called the penny weight, what companies could mine at. There were some very rich mines. There were some very poor mines. The mine manager was important because you knew had to know how to mine it, the costs and so on. So each mine itself was an industry. That's what we traded in. And one of the things he did do with his partners, he idolized Eric Fremantle who was a doyen on the market, they used to go around the continent and introduce gold shares to Zurich, 
They did it in Paris and Belgium and, you know, obviously London had been a big time player in gold shares and that. But that was the history. The continent were very big in buying gold shares. And of course, the US, you know, New York was also a place. That was the market then. So when did you look at the market and say, listen, I want to make a career out of this? I'm a chartered accountant. I qualified as an accountant and then I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and I joined the market. I was a runner. I literally came as a chartered accountant, was on the floor running orders to the dealers, talking to clients on the phone, giving them prices through the binoculars. You know, everything was on chalkboard. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about the market, you know, just being around, knowing when the market was going up. You know, you could feel the pulse in those days. You actually you know, the tone on the market changed and you could feel when markets were getting stronger. There were many poor days as well. Believe me, there were days when we did nothing. But it's an experience I wish everybody could have had, you know, rather than sitting in front of a screen as I am now and just looking at red. (laughs) (laughs) What was the very, very first share you bought? I'm trying to think. It was West Bank Letters. There you are. I remember that. And I made a profit. And with a profit, I bought my wife a gold coin. West Bank, which was part of the Sledgenger Group, and I think today is, I think, part of First Rand or something. I think it was the same. I, I, my history is a little blurred at that, but I mean, they were having a rights issue, and I bought the letters. When um, was that? This was in 1972. Okay. Yeah, uh, or thereabouts, and, and I remember I sold them about a few minutes later, made enough money to buy my wife a gold coin, which was all of about 30 or 40 rand. <laughs> so you held the shares for a few minutes and then sold yeah, it again. That was it. Yeah, I thought was I was easy. the great, world's greatest trader. <laughs> <laughs> what would you regard as your best investment ever? My best investments are my current portfolio now. And the current shares that we're holding for clients at the moment, I think which are, for me, the tech boom is, is just something that we haven't witnessed before. You know, the whole move to technology, which started in the 90s. Right, you know, it started there and has developed into where we are at the moment. I think the gains that we have made holding companies like Amazon and Alphabet and Google and Apple and other companies like ASML, which is the Dutch company, I've never made money. Oh, sorry, when I say money, I've never made percentage profits like those before. And I still think this is going to continue. When did you, you know, get into the, Apple? The early stages, you know, very early stages. So we held him and we held him for a long time with no returns. But, you know, most of the tech shares we've had, we continue to hold. Rake, you also have to understand that the markets that we are presently engaged in, you know, being international, are far different from the markets that we traded on the JSE in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s. You know, it was a very parochial market. In fact, Generally, markets were very parochial. They were never international. I I tell you when the best period as well here was, I think, in the late 80s, that 87 era, where we had companies like Data, Bitvest, Investec. You know, the 90s was a very good period for us, particularly in financials. You know, as this country came into the new era that we are at the moment, I think there were a lot of businesses there which do very well out here. 
And there were some superb little businesses around there. Much greater choice than we have at the moment. But that run came to an end in the late 90s. It came to an end quite abruptly. And then in the 2000s, a whole different world economy emerged. It was not as linked to technology as it was. And now currently we're seeing technology shares dominate again. And now we are seeing uh, it coming to an abrupt halt. Uh, We don't know where the, the bottom would be. Do you think we could see a repeat of history? No, I think that we're going into another era of massive fixed investment. You know, the last decade was more social media, Instagram, you know, YouTube, Facebook, even to an extent Google. It didn't help productivity. I think the next decade that we're going into now is going to help productivity. And it's going to be a different decade of technological advancement. When you think of the advances that are being made in medicine, in health, mainly through technology, helped by 5G and issues around that. When we think of the cloud, you know, I'm sitting here at home now. I could never have done this decades ago or even even a few years ago where I'm completely operational. You know, we've got this new hybrid model where I can go anywhere in the world and access global markets. You know, those companies now are doing their books on zero. In other words, you're getting real-time up-to-date accounting, management account, which we never had before. And then we're getting the move to electric vehicles. And this is dominated by the consumer. So, I mean, the more themes I give you, the more excited I am about the companies that are going to emerge. And all of them technologically related. But the key is you're going to have all these themes, you have all these companies who will emerge, but how do you pick the winners? You know what? You can't have everything. A friend of mine... He used to work with me. He said, you know, you can't go to the dance and kiss every woman there. You know what I mean? You've got to whittle it down to a few selections. Or to put it in a, another way, you know, and Warren Buffett used to say, he says, it's like a harem of women, you know, like a harem. He says, you don't get to know all of them. So it's far better to, to, to find one woman or two. Sorry if, I, if I'm being a bit sexist in this <laughs> uh, conversation. But you're getting the point, you know. I'm saying eventually you have to choose. And I find that's one of the issues. You know, people want to own a lot of shares. They want to own everything. You can't. Just find the ones that you like. And if these companies fail you, which they can, sometimes they don't end up fulfilling the kind of expectations that you had, move on. Find something else. I'm finding that with Tencent at the moment. I was a massive Tencent person, nice person. Suddenly, you're looking at it and saying, hold on a sec. This is going to take a long time. You know, this is not their fault. This is not the company's fault. This is political. Can't blame management. But realize whatever it is, you made a bit of profit or you might be in loss. Move on. Find something else. So I think you have to make those decisions, you know, where you know it's wrong. Don't let your ego get in the way. Just get out. Don't get attached. Never get attached to shares. Now the big question, what was your worst investment ever? I think in the 80s, in the late 80s, we had a boom. I don't know whether you were around at that age. Right? I was still at school. In 1987. <laughs> <laughs> we had a massive boom here, which I think uh, was similar to the 1969 boom. A huge number of businesses came on. And I think we just went for anything there. You know, everything was being listed. I think they would list a flagpole. Uh, <laughs> and remember, on October the 20th or 19th in America, I think it came out 20th year. Markets collapsed 20, 25%. And I think it is that era that, that we all got caught 
with a whole lot of investments. I remember we had Wembley Toys. I'm trying to think of the others that we had. Or R.B. Joffe. These weren't bad businesses. It's just that the, you know, they were quite reasonable businesses. But I think the markets just trashed them after they listed. You know, they weren't they weren't worthy of being listed in the true sense of that day. They were very good little businesses. Everybody took advantage of it to make a few bob. There was a printing company that uh, we also ended up with shares, and I thought, oh my god, you know, just. I just saw my wealth just being absolutely whittled away by these new issues. But it taught me a lesson, you know. It was a major learning curve on how to invest. And, you know, from that date, I mean, that's a good 30-plus years ago. Yeah. Just said, okay, from now on, you know. Only good companies. For, only good companies. <laughs> look for liquidity. Know the management. Know the balance sheet and so on. I'm, I'm trying to think of the some of the other companies that we did. But during that period… We had a portfolio of stuff. Well, <laughs> you know, it ended up just being paper. Of course, you're a CA and you have research yeah. teams who really look at the numbers in a lot of detail. But do you use gut feel at all? Yes, all the time. Gut feel is not gut feel. Gut feel is reading. In other words, I read a lot and I follow the market. What I find with gut feel is that in your head, there's a data point, you know, that, that's measured there. And then... Somewhere along the line, all these data points come together and uh, help you form an opinion. So I think that's very important. You know, the more you read each day, you're learning a little bit more. And I think it's very important to do that kind of reading. And you learn about companies as well, right? You know what I've said, and I've said it in other interviews, we tend to fall in love too easily. Somebody promotes a company and tells us what they're doing and all of a sudden, we get very infatuated and buy it, but we know very little about it. I'm saying when you buy a share or when you make an investment, it must be similar to building a relationship with a person. You know, your friends are made over time. You might meet someone and not like him or alternatively meet someone very nicely and you like like a partner and, you know, you think, oh, this is the love of my life. And three days later, you, you know, what am I doing kind of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's important to treat your investments like relationships. So you want to learn about management. You want to monitor management for a long time before you make it. Just think of Steve Jobs. Just think of uh, Satya Nadella, who's taken over Microsoft now, who's, who's a superb operator. When they first joined, we didn't think much of them. But over time, we've learned to love them. The same kind of thing as Google I'm trying to think of Elon others. Musk? Who, Elon Musk? Yeah, look, he's too flamboyant for me. You know, I mean, what's the word? Phlegmatic? I don't know what the correct word is. You know, all over the place. I'm saying, hold on a sec. You know. Dear Makar. Dear Makar. You know what I mean? I can't hold him. I can't understand what he's doing next. Hold on. This is just too much for me. Of course, we would have been incredibly well off if we would have bought him. You know, it's too difficult for me to understand what he has done. And where one has to commend him is, is what he did with electric vehicles. And everybody now is trying to follow him. You know, he's trying to play catch up. Mm. But I'm, I'm trying to think who else we uh, and only grew to like uh, a long time. Well, Chris was, Chris was great up to a point. And I think we did very well out of him. But he's the kind of person, yes. But I think lately, I'm not sure I'm fully in favor of where they're going at the moment, of where Naspers is heading. But those are the kind of chaps that you learn to support and trust. You know, a chap like Jeb McIntosh from CMH or his predecessor, you know, these are solid, good people. I'm sure there are plenty of others that we can 
identify as well. The Joffies, yeah. you know, even a chap like Stephen Saad. I mean, yeah, he's going through a few issues at the moment. But you learn to support them, you know. You learn to trust what they say. Poor old Stephen. I mean, this is this is something that really turned to bite him. It's not his fault. He thought he was doing the right thing, and he was doing the right thing. But he'll come out of it, you know. So um, a lot of good men. And South Africa has produced superb managers. Look at Peter Rasmus now at ShopRite. I mean, superb job. Look at Capitec, Rian Capitec, yeah. Great example. When you did know? you get into Capitec? At what stage? You know, you know what? I remember a meeting with Rian Stassen and he told me, because they were, they were rejects from Bulan Bank, if I'm getting the story right, and this needs to have some fact checkers, not, <laughs> you know. <laughs> because remember at the whole APSA consolidation, I think they were just discarded. But what they did have, and I remember the story was that they had the most superb IT, you know, and they never had to add on. If you understand, I mean, the whole model of Capitec was around their technology. But also, you can see by the way that they've captured their clients, huge amount of trust passed on from one consumer to the next. I think it's been one of the biggest successes in South Africa, you know, massive success. I don't know. I don't want to measure it in terms of size, but I think that coming from where they have, I think they've far surpassed any other financial institutions. Discovery might be one as well, but I think Capitec is kind of head of the lot. We'll have to leave it there. David, thank you so much for your participation today. I really thought it was really extraordinary and very, very interesting. That was David Shapiro, the Deputy Chairman of SASFIN. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.